Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Hey everyone, welcome along to the show. I hope you're in for a challenging one, as we're going to be speaking with Glenn from Happy Cow Milk. Now, this is actually a really fascinating interview because we talk about the hard road of entrepreneurship and what matters most. And to be honest, this interview went in many different directions that I didn't expect. So I hope that you enjoy listening to it. I do hope some of the concepts and things that Glenn talks about challenge you in your own entrepreneurial journey or makes you reflect on where you're at and what you're doing. Here's an excerpt from our conversation. You know, in the Instagram world where we all want to be shown, oh, I'm helping this social enterprise this week or something. I mean, that's all cool. And I, I don't want to sound like a dick. But, you know, some of the heroes are the... You know, there'll be these old ladies who just every single week, yeah, the steadiness, just go and do this thing mm-hmm. that is really valuable for this one organization, and mm-hmm. no one ever hears about it, mm-hmm. and probably never will until her funeral. Well, I know you're really going to enjoy this interview if you've listened to any of the Seeds podcasts. What we're trying to do here is curate a collection of stories of people doing things a little bit differently, maybe pushing boundaries, whether that's in charity, business, or some other way. If you enjoy this episode, then maybe leave a rating or review, tell a friend, and check out some of the earlier episodes, because there's more than 110 of them now. And don't forget there's a website at theseeds.nz, which has lots of other information, including videos, articles, and information on the next Impact Dinner, which is happening on Thursday, July 25th in Christchurch. You might want to check it out. Now let's get into this conversation with Glenn. All right, so it's a pleasure to welcome Glenn from the Happy Cow Milk Company. Thanks for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me on. No problem. So what we do on this podcast is we talk a lot about what people are doing, yeah. and um, we talk about purpose and sort of challenges that they've faced and things. But before we dive into what you're actually doing right now, I find it's helpful to go right back to the beginning of a person's life and just find out a little bit about um, their childhood and where they're from. So why don't we start <laughs> there and <laughs> just tell us about, uh, yeah, where you're from. Well, I was actually born in Zimbabwe. Well, I was born in Rhodesia, actually. Right. Um, and I was born right in the middle of the, the war when... Uh, well, Robert Mugabe was essentially taking over um, Rhodesia, and um, I was on a on a dairy farm, and it was a very different lifestyle out there. I had a, I had a nanny. We had a what was called a very politically correct name, a cook boy, and we had a garden boy, and we had about a hundred African workers wow. on the farm who lived on a well, we called it a compound. It's essentially an African village. And because it was the middle of the war, um, well, I don't know how early you want to go, but basically um, we had a big fence around our house. Hmm. We had landmines on the in, in the garden, anti-personnel mines that would uh, face outwards because what um, terrorists would do, would they, would, they would target houses and attack from the outside. So we had a, a bank of, of buttons in the hallway, all labelled, and you push one of those buttons and it would send the landmine off. Wow. So, <laughs> so we, you didn't push buttons in our house. <laughs> so this but, is an unusual childhood. <laughs> I can tell already. It's an unusual childhood. So, so um, This yeah. is what I love about this podcast, though, because, you know, like I had no idea. I thought we were going to talk about milk and, you know, <laughs> social well, enterprise. But here yeah. we are. 
yeah, in yeah. a war zone in Africa. I suppose it was Rhodesia. a war zone, yeah, but it was this is the thing you just I suppose this is pivotal to to the way I think about things because I mean I would kiss mum goodnight and she had a nine millimeter pistol by her bed. Right. You know, and dad would check the cows with a submachine gun. And um yeah, and anyway, when Robert Mugabe at the time was was viewed as very much a um I suppose a hero of the of I suppose fighting for um, African rights and things like that, but he actually was a bit of a rat bag, and, and my parents weren't going to have it, so they uh, we ended up moving to New Zealand. But that sort of African lifestyle, like Africa in the seventies and the eighties, was you know it was remote, right? Know? And um, and I suppose the the people I was surrounded by, everyone's very independent, and you know my grandmother and my grandfather, and and you know, there was a story where my, my dad decides he's going to kayak down the Zambezi River with his friend. So my mum drops them off and I'm with mum. This is in the middle of the African bush. And off he goes, starts kayaking down the Zambezi and mum and I drive and we're going to meet them downstream, you know, a couple of hundred kilometres. And our car breaks down in the middle of the bush. And we mum sort of says, oh, well, I don't know how to fix this thing. So out we hop and we're going to start walking. And it's about 4 p.m. and it's a bush dirt road and I'm in bare feet in my stubbies and we're walking along and we can see lion footprints. <laughs> and there's this huge commotion going on about 100 metres away and I could see, if I looked up above the, the long grass, I could see the tops of this, this big tree moving. And I asked mum what's going on. She says, well, it's those lions are actually eating the baboons in the trees they're hunting the baboons and this is some hundred meters away and we're just trotting away but i never got this f- feeling that mum was upset or, or stressed or anything and we ended up probably walking for about an hour and along comes this convoy and it's got these um people all everyone's armed to the teeth and it's anyway it's this a big game hunter who's on he's a german big game hunter and here he is in deepest darkest africa and he's got these trackers and support crew and everything like this and he goes around the corner and there's this four-year-old boy walking down the street with his mum walking <laughs> down this dirt road and i think i think of that story quite often because it, i think it was quite pivotal for me at that age is just that you know this could have potentially got quite bad spent the night in the african bush snakes and literally lions a couple of hundred meters away but it's actually never as bad you know as you think it's going to be i mean you just i think what i learned from those early childhood years is just 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 chill out and we can actually get through it Mm. um anyway we ended up immigrating to new zealand and my parents so, so just Sorry. picking up on that story, because I want to dive into that, <laughs> just, yes, okay. just because I, I hear what you're saying, like the African bush, the lions down the road, yeah, like yeah, yeah. it would be easy to let your mind jump to the worst possible scenario, which is the lions are going to eat me yeah. when I lie down at night or the snake yeah. is going to come or whatever. But yeah. what I think what you're saying is that that taught you an attitude of just making yeah. it do in the sense of whatever happens is going to happen. and. Yeah. I'm not going to stress about it or worry about it. Is that is that it what is, you're meaning? Or? It is, and actually, it's actually very rare for a lion to actually hunt mm. a human. Mm. It's actually very rare for a snake to bite you, other, unless you accidentally trip over it or you stumble upon it. Yeah, um, a, a lion, if it bites you, is probably more curious of what you are, right? And those sorts of things. So, 
what I think what I'm trying what I'm thinking is that when on the surface things can be really scary, but if you just look under the surface, and I think th- there's always more going on than we than appears at the start mm. or on the outside. So if we look underneath it, we can probably find that we don't need to stress out so much. Right. But yeah, it's just. Let's just deal with it and yeah. <laughs> chill out. Yeah. And I guess then, therefore, that's applicable to other parts of life too, right? Like business situations. Yeah. Well, yeah. And um, I mean, the last year, which is where I've essentially just lost everything. Um, again, I mean, what's the end of the world? I mean, I've yes, I've lost everything. I've lost 20 years worth of, of accumulating assets, I suppose. Mm. But I've still got my health and, you know, my family are okay and, you know, we, we'll get through it. We can see where we're going to go. Mm. And I think if we just can not get really high and not get really low and just try and deal with, um, I suppose, the facts, which is all very Asperger's of me. But, um, mm. yeah, I think it's important for us. And I think in today's day and age, I think we, we kind of get kind of outraged a lot and we get excited about things and we sort of run here, there and, and share a lot of stuff. And I just, I think, particularly in this last year, I've learnt maybe to just scale back and just analyze things a little bit deeper. Mm. Mm. Particularly in our modern culture where it's the clickbait headline of yeah. the, the latest yeah. catastrophe or whatever, right? Absolutely. Like, yeah. <laughs> That's really fascinating, though, because I, I hear what you're saying. You know, you, you're on the road, just put one foot in front of the other and keep walking until the German big game hunter comes and yeah. <laughs> gives well, you a ride. Someone was going to come along. <laughs> it was probably going to be some African on his way home or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's cool. So what age were you um, when you left Africa? So I was seven. Okay. Um, and then my parents just started the dairy farming um, lifestyle. Essentially, you start at the bottom and then you, you you know, buy a few cows and then you get a bigger job and then you buy more cows. And mm. so I've, I think I've, I've been to about seven or eight primary schools. No, seven or eight schools, I think, mm. where I've just shifted. We shifted around the Waikato a lot. Right. And... I think what my parents did was they left in their 30s, essentially started again, left what, you know, they left the family farm, um, what everyone thought was a little bit mad, and started again with nothing in New Zealand in a foreign country, and they just started working. And mm. So had Mugabe taken over at that point? Yeah, that, well, yeah, what happened was... Um, um, there was a uh, my knowledge of the history of exactly yeah, what happened. I yeah. kind of know that lots of land was taken back, right? And well, that was before all the land was taken back. That oh, was okay. in the two thousands. Oh, I see. Yeah, but what happened was there was a big meeting, and one of Mugabe's generals was the the um, ministry uh, minister of agriculture. Okay, and I think Dad was a little outspoken at that meeting. From I gather, and anyway, got a phone call to say he should come into the the police office uh, to the Karoi, um police station and uh, to be arrested basically ah. um, this is the way things work in Africa and actually dad had fought in the war with a with a, the, the the head policeman was an African guy who had fought with um, with my father and he got him out right okay. and dad sort of said I don't really want to live in this sort of country yeah you know where that sort of thing happens so yeah so they walked yeah. away from it all or mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Wow. And it seemed crazy at the time, but then 10 years later, my uncle also had to walk from his farm, but he was forcibly removed, you know, he was beaten up and, uh, and kicked out. So, yeah. And there's a lot of, I mean, I'm, I'm very conflicted about how we sort of talk or how I think about the history of, of Africa, you know, colon- yeah. colonialism and, 
and all that sort of stuff. I mean, we could talk for hours about that, but essentially that's what happened. Yeah. Whether it's right or wrong. Yeah. yeah. And in terms of your own personal story, like I have really good memories of being seven, you know, yes, like I it's, 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 um, it's not too young is my point. No. So what, what, what do you think that that shaping did for you in terms of your character? Like what were some of the things that have shaped mm. you into who you've become based on that influence from well, African childhood? Actually, all I remember is just um, terrible self-confidence just the entire time. You know, you'd stay, go to a new school, you'd just learn, just get some friends, and then I'd move to a new school. Right. And then move to a new school, and I just, yeah, I, I, it wasn't a bad childhood, I had a great childhood, but mm. I think I was always just terribly self-conscious. Because um, you were always the new kid. Yeah, 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 I think so, and then always second-guessing myself, you know, did I... Do I actually, you know, am I saying the right thing? Do I, am I thinking the right thing? Mm-hmm. And also wasn't very good at, at school, particularly maths. Mm-hmm. And um, because of that, I was constantly um, in a state of questioning or not, not, re- not, never confident that what I was thinking was correct. Mm-hmm. So I've always, I suppose, thought about things a lot mm-hmm. just to sit for my own I suppose, trying to calibrate if I'm on the right track or not. Yeah. Um, and then essentially I got to t- about 23 and I just decided I'm not going to live like this anymore. <laughs> now I don't care what anyone thinks. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Which is yeah, probably not good either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that moving at age seven, you know, like had that had a huge impact on you then? Oh, you yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, moving a whole country like, I mean. Because what do you think you'd, left behind in terms of your culture and your identity and your sense of home? Hmm. It's interesting. I mean, I barely started school, so um, yeah. in some ways it was it was big, in some ways it wasn't. I suppose I just, it was a new school and I didn't know the people. It was probably the, and it was damn cold here. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, it was still a, a, a still a fairly remote country lifestyle. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And in terms of, like, did you have brothers and sisters as well? So I've got a sister. She's four years younger. Okay. Yeah. So she was very young. Too. Yeah. So she, she wouldn't have the same memories. And no, no, no. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So, so what did you, um, having moved around so much and things, but <laughs> always been kind of on dairy farms and yeah, I mean that that was what you knew. Is that all I knew? Yeah, it was dairy and. I, my parents eventually bought a farm in Southland, so they'd started with nothing in, you know, about '84, and then '95 they bought a farm in Southland, and um, we moved down there. Okay. So that was another big change, and um, I was in my last year at high school, or second to last year actually, hmm. and um, then it was essentially the plan. I couldn't think of anything else to do other than dairy farming, so I went to Lincoln University. Right. Not because I'm academic, but my parents had, you know, wanted to give me that opportunity. And I remember saying, just before I wanted to leave, I didn't want to go because, well, I couldn't really see any point of it. But it was a really good op- opportunity. I moved up here to Christchurch, mm-hmm. went to Lincoln. Mm-hmm. And again, being, not being very academic, I sort of struggled. But it really opened up how, I mean, I moved out of that dairy, insular dairy world. Right. And I was able to... I suppose meet people from all different parts of the country and different backgrounds and it was really uh really good for me yeah 
And um, But then there was a pivotal point. I, I joined the Territorial Army. I don't know why. Well, I had a sort of a interest in the military. Mm. Which So you'd finished at Lincoln? No, I was still at Lincoln. Okay. So I was trying to decide what I'm going to do because I didn't want to go dairy farming anymore because for the first time I didn't have to get up early in the morning. I kind right. of liked it. Yeah. So I thought, what am I going to do? And, you know, I was interested in the military. And so I joined the New Zealand Army and um, I went on to an exercise with the 2nd 1st Battalion. And when uh, we were doing live firing, we were all shooting past each other and everything about gun safety, we were doing the opposite, basically. So you have to be very precise. And um, I remember the section commander yelling, left, left, left. And I start running right. And then he's yelling, left. And I think, oh, he really wants me to go left. So I keep running right. And what had happened is I've got my left and right mixed up. Oh. Now, I normally can do left and right. But in that heat of the moment when it was really, really critical, I got it wrong. Huh. And I didn't think much of it, and I was like, oh, I really cocked that up. And then when you're in the army, when you make mistakes, they make you carry the radio. So now I'm carrying the radio, it's extra 10 kgs, and then you know, um, I have to start doing the comms, and it comes through, you know, kilo 3-9, this is uh, kilo 9-3, come in, uh, we'll move to Golf Romeo 2479057. Right. And I just completely couldn't do it. And I was just getting numbers mixed up, and and they initially had to take the radio off me because I couldn't even do it. So here I was, I was a university student, yeah, going to the army. A private in the army is not like the most highly skilled job in the world, <laughs> you know. It's kind of like if if you can't do anything, you can be a private in the army. And I can't do the basics. Huh. And this is this like this pivotal moment in my life. Where like, what the heck am I going to do? Like, I actually have a disability. It turns out I got dyscalculia. Huh. So that's like um, dyslexia for numbers. Right. So not not great if you're an entrepreneur to have that, but um, it's, <laughs> it's, um, it's an actual... So dis- it's similar, similar to dyslexia, like the, yeah. the numbers themselves are yeah. hard to get right. And yeah, so if you tell me your phone number now, I wouldn't be able to remember it. Well, right. I'll, I'll try, but probably wouldn't be able to remember it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, doing maths in your head is... It's it's more that you forget. It's not that I can't do understand how to do it. It's just like mm. if I'm going to carry a two or a one, I've forgotten what it is mm. before I can do the next bit of the calculation. So, mm. um, yeah, that, that was... And that had to do with the left and the right thing well, as well? Well, apparently people with dyslex, uh, discount clear mix up left and right. Because ah. the way I know if I'm going left or right is I put which hand is left and right. I, have to, I know I'm right-handed. So I think, which hand do I hold a pen in? I see. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and people say, I'll do the L thing, but that doesn't work for me. <laughs> so um, when you're live firing and got high velocity rounds all around, you can't go, oh, which hand do I write with? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and if your commander says, go left, and you go right, then <laughs> and there's some bullets flying. Um, yeah, 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 we yeah. got quite close to uh, yeah live rounds there. So um, again, that's another pivotal part in your life. Where yeah. I'm just thinking, well, you know, I actually just getting a job at a bank or getting a job for a corporate or something like that is actually probably not going to happen for me. Hmm. I'm so how did you find out that that's what you had? Did you have some oh, it's tests actually, or something? It's, or it's it? taken a few years to, to come through. Um, I was always with um, special education, well, Spelled and, and Kip McGrath and those sorts of things growing right. up. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, so um, 
So what, take us back to the army then. What, what happened next? Did they say, thanks for trying, but <laughs> no. here's the door or what? No, 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 no they don't do that. And they, they, they really... Um, they find a place? They'll find a place they, <laughs> that they want to recruit more than anything. So, no, I eventually... It, it, what you're doing at that age is you're learning what yep. you're good at and where you fit in the world. And I just thought, well, yeah, I'm not, not exactly going to be an SAS operative. So <laughs> I, I ended up... You know, most territorials spend three years in the army and they leave, so mm. you get a good experience and it's 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 fun and stuff and right. you know moved on and just back to farms. But I was never content with farms and just wanted to get off the farm, do something different, and eventually ended up meeting a guy online and um, uh, started a, a Mister Rentals business in Invercargill. Hmm. So had no passion for appliance rentals <laughs> whatsoever. Okay. <laughs> but what I had a passion for business and anyway I got into that business and it got me off the farm and learning marketing and sales and and really cash flow management and all those right. sorts of things. So, so what was it doing? Is renting renting appliances, so TVs, washing oh, machines, fridges, yep. fitness equipment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um but so I did that for a couple of years, and I could just see that was around the mid two thousands, and it was then I really noticed that I'd moved out of the dairy world and into town, mm-hmm. and this is where I became exposed to, you know, I suppose the anti dairy type mindset that people were having, and around the the environmental impact and and the huge dairy conversions in Southland and Canterbury where I was, mm-hmm. and you know, I just started thinking actually it's not right. I um I, they've really got a point, and then what I the thing that really got me was it was it was people who had like a a farm they were just buying another farm and then another farm, mm. and I just you know I don't have a problem with that as such, but I just sort of felt that I. It becomes you more couldn't, corporate farming. It was becoming it? more corporate. You couldn't do what my parents had did. Right. You know, just ordinary people who start up on the bottom and then they just go dairy farming and then they buy a farm. So that was becoming less and less the way. And now it's even worse. Mm. So um, that was my main, it's my main driver. So because mm. of my... So what sort of year are we talking now? Oh, that Is it late 2000? 2007 or 8 that I started in earnest. Yeah. And that's when I started the really building the happy cow model and i was thinking well i want something that's going to be good for the environment good for um the the animals had to be and more more so it's good for young farmers coming through Mm -hmm. i suppose ordinary people and what i've learned is that my my core the thing that drives me is how do we give access to ordinary people to do ordinary things you know I, i suppose if you think of um if we think of Harvard as an education, I'm sort of thinking, well, how do we give great education to ordinary people? I'm thinking, how do we make farming become something that average people can get involved in, that you don't need to be a millionaire or highly educated? And I suppose with my disability and with my, well, all the all the issues I've got going on, I'm always going to be that person who's not the most uh, the smartest, the most um, proficient and those sorts of things. So I'm always sort of thinking... Well, how, well, I've always got through life by taking shortcuts. You know, how do I, you know, the way I do maths and numbers and things would um, would surprise people. Mm. <laughs> but I've just developed ways of that work for my mm. my funny brain. Mm. So 
That's how I sort of look so at all the So you're thinking about how to how to give access for people, really, yeah, it sounds yeah. like. That's it's interesting right. you mentioned that just because I interviewed someone named Jeff Bone about dyslexia, and we talked for 25 minutes because he has dyslexia, and he was talking about his son. And yeah. um, he actually said he describes it as a form of superpower. And yeah. the reason is that it teaches you a different way of thinking Absolutely. and that it forces you to not just fit in the straight and narrow yep. ways of doing things that actually, because of the way that your brain works, you end up, um, mm. you know, being highly creative <laughs> in yeah. how you do things. And, and he listed a whole bunch of names like Richard Branson and yeah. all these people who've achieved amazing things because yep. they thought outside the box, yeah, which is what exactly you're getting right. at yeah, a little yeah. bit. And that's exactly because. I mean, my wife is tearing her hair out. She says, why won't you just go and get a job? Mm. And it's like, well, I mean, I went for a job at Westpac once and it was all going well until he asked me to do the balance sheet <laughs> exercise. Right. And then, uh, well, I wasn't getting that job. So, yeah, I have I know that that's a limitation. So I'm always thinking, you mm. do have to think differently. Mm. And it is a kind of a, well, it's a constraint and you deal with, and when you have a constraint, you have to go around, work around it. Yeah. Yeah. So, in some ways, it's a um, it's an advantage, mm. I suppose. Mm. But um, yeah, that was really the genesis of of where Happy Cow comes from. Is mm-hmm. is the other thing is that the the, the dairy industry is so um, how's the word? It's 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 really controlled by the people who own the farms, and mm-hmm. I don't mean controlled in a in a bad way. It's just like Oh, sorry. They That's get okay. the they get the vote. They get um you know they control Fonterra and the they elect the the people on the boards and the you know who represents federated farmers and all those sorts of things. And it's just there's there's a voice there that's not getting heard. Right. You know there's a whole there's a group of a lot of people who want to do things differently. Mm. And I suppose um I eventually just started the Happy Cow Milk Company mm. and. Um, the idea was we wanted to small herds, uh, a small herd supply in their local market. And New Zealand's probably the worst place in the world to um, start this business because we've got the largest herds, average herd size in the world. Mm. But if you go to the US or, or Holland, um, Germany, France, you know, the average herd size is around uh, around 50 cows. Right. And what we've seen in all, all those countries for the past 18 years is around... Eight to ten percent of dairy farmers are closing their doors every single year. So, you know, in two thousand, I think there was a hundred thousand dairy farmers in in Germany, and now there's about fifty thousand. And it's these smaller farms. You know, fifty small farms will close down; and they're replaced by one large farm. Right. So it's exactly what I've sort of seen happening in Southland, mm. where we've got this concentration of of wealth, I suppose, and it's it's creating a dairy industry that, I mean people don't like mm. you know this is what this is what's making the headlines it's mm. these these essentially factory farms or mm. indoor farms that are very intensive where you know an animal's you know a cow lasts maybe th- you milk her for three years and then she's you know she's sent to the works because she breaks down basically mm. so so it has to do with that corporatization model of farming yeah. itself right yeah well that's right it yeah. is and if we look at the whole dairy industry around the world is the farmers aren't making any money. Like they're literally losing money. Mm-hmm. Most farmers in um, in the US and in Europe, and that's even after subsidies. Mm. And 
you know, I'm sort of looking at this and we've got a whole a whole generation of people now who are saying, well, we actually want to buy proper products that are going to not affect the environment and the animals are treated well and so on and so forth. And mm-hmm. we just, I'm just seeing no movement. So I'm the least qualified person to even do this. I have no money, essentially. I'm not the smartest tool in the shed, but basically <laughs> I've just got a desire to do it. And it, I don't know, it just something drives me that I've grown up dairy farming. Mm-hmm. For some reason, I'm passionate about changing the dairy industry and for the better. So I am just keep going. So anyway, we started Happy Cow. And it, really what I did is we wanted to leave all our calves with their mothers to, to wean naturally. Mm-hmm. We wanted to just remove, reduce the pressure on the animals and the cows so that they didn't have to produce huge amounts of milk. They didn't have to produce you know, for long periods of time right? and reduce the stocking rate. And we could go into all sorts of details of how you reduce the environmental impact. Mm. But to, mm. to just draw a picture of what you're talking <clears throat> about, like, because um, I'm just thinking about chickens and eggs. And yeah. I remember even 10 years ago, you just bought the eggs that were on yeah. the shelf and they yeah. were, they were definitely caged chickens, you know, yes. <laughs> whereas it, I've noticed in the last couple of years, this is real, you, you almost have to seek out yeah. the caged eggs yeah. versus the, yeah. um, you know, and the, the packages make it look like the chicken is out in the field and <laughs> yeah. having a great time eating some worms and yeah, things. Yeah. And I don't think that's accurate either, but yeah, it, yeah, there's yeah. definitely been a trend towards the oh, yeah. sort of what's the, what's going on here and yeah and the images of chickens lined up in cages is <laughs> yeah, um absolutely. not as uh, appealing mm. to people is it so is it, it uh, the point is is that sort of what you're meaning like that yeah. the cows are being used in a similar way that the chickens in the in the cages that yeah. you're just working them so hard yeah. to get the milk and so yeah yeah that's right i mean what what happens is cows have to get in calf every year to produce milk and if they don't get into calf within a very specific period of time, mm-hmm. well, then they get carried over, basically. Well, they'll produce no, no milk for a year. So what farmers do is they'll, they'll cull those cows um, or they'll get sore feet from walking around. Or, and th- there's various things, but it's, if we just loosen up a little bit on the intensity and make it so that you know, we just a bit more fairness, a bit more caring, a bit more... I suppose, um, compassion. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm trying to bring to the dairy industry and just um, sort of treat our animals as, I mean, still trying to be economic, but just a, a different sort of attitude towards it. So that's really what Happy Cow is trying to do. Mm-hmm. And so in an ideal world, would there be, um, rather than this one massive farm, there mm-hmm. would be 20 farms yeah. With forty or fifty cows yeah, in the family, or you know, yeah, somebody's right. who probably knows them by name, yeah. right? Because <laughs> yeah. that's not that many cows. <laughs> no, no. Well, it's actually very small, but yeah, yeah, uh, that's exactly right. And I suppose as I've gone through this process, we've sort of we've learnt how that's going to be possible. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it seems crazy to if you talk to anyone in the dairy industry about that now, they just think it's completely mad. Mm-hmm. You know, it just can't work. And you talk to anyone. Germany and France and the US, they say, well, you can't make money on those farms. Right. And it's true, you can't. Mm. But we think you can. <laughs> so um, 
I, but it sounds to me like there's other drivers here than oh, the yeah. money, right? Like that's the oh, that's absolutely. the point is that we're talking about impact yeah. beyond the, yeah. the the profit. That yeah, yeah. Well, that's right. And then I suppose as the story goes on, we 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 come crashing down and realizing that um, it has to be commercial. Mm. So um, well, take us. Let's let's talk through the what what you've been doing. But mm. so, what year was this that you started? It was in two thousand twelve or so. Twenty fourteen, I think I started okay. selling milk. Yeah, yeah. And where? So j- just talk us through that. Like, where was that? Was that here in Canterbury? Yeah. So I built a mobile cow shed. Um, right. I had no idea how to build a milk factory, so I just downloaded everything off the MPI website, built my own pasteurizer, and and basically just submitted it, and then the inspector turns up and he's used to you know a Fonterra plant right multi-million dollar oh, yeah. <laughs> processing <this>. facility <laughs> and he says to me in the car so have you visited any milk factories I said nope <laughs> he said what experience Come have you got ours. with milk processing uh, none <laughs> um, and yeah I just but they gave you the certification yeah eventually he said well you got to fix that and you got to fix that and, okay and um, really it was a good understanding of how the regulatory environment works mm-hmm. and anyway we started selling milk and our first customer was um c4 ah c1 all right yeah so we're selling milk to sam and um in reusable bottles and yeah as time went on i thought right we need to sell more milk and we need to get a bigger pasteurizer and a bigger this and a bigger that and mm-hmm. i just couldn't make the economics work yeah so how many cows did you start up with we started off with seven Right, um, and then we ended up with fourteen, and then we got twenty-four, and ended up with about fifty cows. And I just ended up going bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah, and I still couldn't make any money. And I thought, if I had a bigger bottle machine, maybe that would work. And mm. if I had a bigger pasteurizer and more efficient bottling and all those sorts of things. Mm. And I eventually went up to Oakland's Milk and Nelson, who they're very successful at selling milk locally. Okay. And they showed me around, and they had just they was they was probably selling t- double the milk I was, but they had literally spent millions, like mm. literally millions, and I could just see that the approach I was taking wasn't going to solve my goal of making this accessible to the average person. I see. You still, if you wanted to be a micro dairy processor, like micro fifty cows, sixty cows, yeah, you still needed to be a multimillionaire to do it this way. And that's when I really decided that we were going to have to shut the door. And I just worked. So, what year are we oh, talking? Was, is this this was this time last year? Okay. Oh no, this was this. This would have been January, twenty eighteen. Twenty eighteen. Yep. Mm-hmm. And then we're I, recording this in June, end of June, yeah. twenty nineteen. So, just to give context. Yep. Yeah. And I was. I mean, I was out of money. Um, I couldn't raise any more money. The mm-hmm. bank wouldn't give me any more money. Mm-hmm. We were just. I was in debt. And did you? But you had. So where was the, where was the differential that that wasn't equating? Because people were yeah. interested; they wanted oh, to buy the product, we but so it many was people. costing too much to make. Yeah, or what, yeah, what? I just couldn't physically process and bottle and oh. deliver enough milk. I see at a cheap enough price. I mean, our milk was selling for four dollars fifty a liter, right? And you know, when standard milk's two dollars fifty, you know, Lewis Road's about you know three dollars fifty, right? You know, so we were we we're clearly it's a premium. bump up, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> almost and, double, and yeah. we just yeah we couldn't meet demand, and it, I mean we could have just thrown more money at it and we could have done it, mm. but that wasn't the goal. I mean, you don't need. It's not innovation to just 
spend $2 million and build a standard efficient dairy processing plant. That's mm. not innovation. That's like, well, you just need lots of money. Mm. Um, so so how are you how are you mentally i guess coping with the, the ups and downs here because one of the things i love to do is ask these sort of hard questions because people who are listening either yeah. they've been through it or one day they will go through it probably yeah. like yeah. we all have ups and downs i've had ups and downs yeah. you know so i'm just curious what what it was like for you and how did you cope um, or are we talking about the african road and the lion in the distance Oh, and, no. that, <laughs> and that helped you? or <laughs> Well, I mean, I could probably keep going, but bear in mind, you know, my, there's my wife and I've got four kids mm-hmm. um, and, you know, I wasn't home very much. Um, it's not like they had lots of money coming in. Um, they were financially under pressure. Everyone was just saying, Glenn, you've got to stop this. And my wife was just at her end. And yeah. Um, I suppose I was so determined to make this work because I had just thrown everything, like literally everything. And because we were getting so much support from the public, just saying we're really passionate about what you're doing, I just kept going. And I, mm. you know, in those four years, I've probably had 30 days off in those four years. Mm. And eventually, I just actually didn't have money to fill the truck up, mm. couldn't deliver anymore. I had mm. people who owed me money and stuff, but I owed a lot of people money. Mm-hmm. And. I just had to, I just had to go, and I put on Facebook. I said, "I'm sorry, we have to shut down." Yeah, and um, yeah, and then at that moment, I suppose that was. So talk us through that moment, or what you're thinking as you're typing that. Oh well, I was yeah. <laughs> well, I, I mean, the night before, my wife had said, "Look, you've just got to shut this down," but mm. she'd said that every night for the past five months, mm. and I said, "All right, I will." I said, okay. And the next morning, you know, I got up and we got the kids to school and I went to one of the cafes that used our milk in Rangiora and I just had to basically just tell everyone, sorry, I won't be delivering anymore and we're shutting down and it's mm. it's quite surreal. And off I went, I shut that, I sent that and I shut my laptop down and went home and mm-hmm. basically just was going to try and sort out all the mess because... I had no idea what that mess was going to look like. But, I mean, we owe people about Mm. $110,000. And, of course, that Facebook post just went ballistic. It Mm. just got shared everywhere. Mm. And then I just sort of thought, well, maybe there is a way to keep going if people are really into it. Mm. My wife had said, look, I'm taking the kids. We're going down to my parents. Um, I'll be back in three weeks and you better have a job. So in that three weeks... I just had so much support from all around, literally around the world. Hmm. So I got asked to write a, a piece in the spin-off. Mm-hmm. So I wrote my story, basically, and then that went, literally went global. And, um, you know, all the people who had been helping me, you know, um, in McCarthy Design and all the, and um, Chris Herbert and, and co, mm-hmm. they all said, well, you've got to do something with this. This is like... You, this is exceptional. Yeah, the exposure that you've gotten here. Yeah, and it's just like my phone just did not stop. Mm. Like it would sit on the f- table and it would just be vibrating constantly just of all these notifications. And then about 10 o'clock at night it would sort of slow down a bit and then the other side of the world would get up. Right. And they'd start reading it. And I was getting emails and messages from people in Canada and Sweden and everywhere. So we, we set up a mailing list and I think we got... 
we got 9,000 people signed up in 24 hours. Wow. So we started this process of how we were going to, I suppose, utilize the crowd to rebuild Happy Cow. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know how I was going to do it or what I was going to do. I just knew that what I was doing was wrong. And um, anyway, my wife came back and said, all right, well, where's your job? And I said, well, I've got all this support and I think I'm going to have another crack. And, um, yeah, that was a bit much for her. And mm. um, so I, uh, I ended up having to move out. And um, But I just knew that I knew that I was onto something and I knew that what I'd done didn't work and I know that everyone doesn't understand and I know it looks completely crazy to everyone and to all my family and everyone. Why is he still going on with a stupid business that failed? You know, it's a tiny little business. Small businesses are never going to work. You know, it didn't work. People are trying to do it everywhere. He's trying to compete with Fonterra and Lewis Road and all this. And why is he still going? And I'm basically going because I don't see anyone else in the world who is serious about changing the way the dairy industry operates. No one is, no one is focused on these smaller family farms who are all going broke like I did. And they're doing that every year. There's 4,000 in, in, in the U.S. did that last year. Mm. And so we put up a, um, I put up a video on Patreon. I basically just said, look, I've run this business into the ground and I've basically I've cocked it all up, um, but we're going to redo it. <laughs> and, you know, we got you know, a huge amount of people have signed up. So for, since June last year, I've been funded solely by Patreon. Right, and it's basically people who care about my mission and what I'm trying to do mm -hmm. have been funding me, so I've been able to basically live, pay pay the rent, and um, keep my family supported while I work through it. But it took me about three months. I didn't realise how run down I was, hmm. but it took me June, July, August, really into September last year, where. I could actually start thinking properly again. I didn't realize I just run myself down. Mm -hmm. And we got um, interns from Canterbury University to help me out, and we just crunched the numbers, and we just looked at the dairy industry from every aspect, the whole milk business, and I spoke to Lewis Road Creamery, and I spoke to budget milk suppliers, and basically just figured out where all the money goes, where it gets made and where it gets lost, and who's got the power. And... Mm -hmm. and um, basically come up with a new system and it was really I had to fail oh the business got liquidated as well mm -hmm. um, I'd hoped to sell my assets and pay off all my creditors but the liquidators came in over a $5,000 debt to Eurofins and sold everything right so when everything was sold that was the, actually what that did is drew a line in the sand that says well if I'm going to start again I have to, I've got no legacy equipment mm. I would have used my old equipment and that would have been the completely wrong thing to do because we're thinking the wrong way. Right. Basically what I'd done is I just replicated a standard dairy business, a standard dairy processing plant. On a smaller scale. On a smaller scale. Right. And of yeah. course you've got no economies of scale. Yeah. And then we were trying to deliver milk all around, you know, all around Christchurch. So there's a big cost involved. And <laughs> yeah, I had one full-time guy, Elias, who's a great guy, um, from Chile, and he would do 25 to 30 deliveries a day. Wow. And he would start at six and he would get back at like six. And it just didn't work. It wasn't, mm. you know. So the so the failure of the business 
forces you to yeah. go back to the let's yeah. clean slate, yeah. <laughs> get a piece yeah. of paper out, what didn't work, what yeah. did work, that type of, yeah, that's absolutely. where you're at. So, so Roger Sutton, because um, obviously it was in the, in the press, oh, happy cow milk liquidated and all this. Yeah. And Roger Sutton said, oh, look, um, he says, I think you're doing things the right way, but what you need to do is write down what went wrong. Right. And, um, so I just spent the next week just wrote a report basically on what went wrong and it caused me to really think hard about all my assumptions and at the core and it was an assumption that basically I'm doing I'm going to look after the cows and the environment and everything and I just made this subconscious assumption that people were just going to have to pay someone's got to pay for that right and I was like well the consumer's going to have to pay or you're going to have to just deal with a bit of inconvenience mm. You know, of having to fill up your own reusable bottle and find a retailer and all that sort of stuff. Mm. And but just, but you're hoping that they're going to grasp the big, bigger picture. Well, and yes. therefore they would be willing to do that. Yes, yeah. but there's only a small perspe- yeah. uh, per- per- percentage of people who are going to pay an absolute premium mm-hmm. and go to all the hassle of driving around trying to find our milk. And well, to me, and I might be wrong, but this is my, my view, and I think that as a social enterprise, we actually have to think harder than that and actually really innovate to say, no, well, let's give a um, an alternative, but it still has to be cost competitive and mm. it still has to be you know, convenient. Mm. And if we look at successful social enterprise, and I think of Brianna at um, mm. Theek and Theek, um, yeah. Little Yellow Bird is another example, and they've kind of done that. Mm. And I hadn't done that. And I had not by purpose, it's just the way things had gone. I hadn't innovated enough. Mm. So um, working through all that, we just figured out that if you're small scale, you have to, you can't do it the way everyone else does it. So we've, we've turned ourselves into a software company essentially now because the real stumbling block to farmers is everything... It's the compliance mm. of processing milk. I mean, if you, you can grow carrots and just deliver them direct to the consumer, you can't do that with milk because of the, the risk of involved. So we've developed a, um, I suppose, a black box milk pasteurizing system. Mm. And the only reason I could do that is because I just started off with absolutely no knowledge of milk processing back in 2014 and just learned. And... And this is the way of thinking differently. Most people who are building milk processing plants are trained in milk processing plants. Right. So they think of, oh, well, this is the way we solve that problem. This is the way we solve that one. But I suppose I haven't. So we've designed something completely different. And um, it's basically based on small pasteurizers about the size of a dishwasher. And a farmer would have about five to six of these. Um, The farmer would put the put these tanks inside an enclosure which we call the happy hub and the enclosure is basically a milk factory except no one can fit inside it it's only big enough to fit you know these tanks right but and then that's controlled by an ipad so that what we're trying to do is that you can get any farmer who is a lay person who's not a process engineer that they can comply with the highest milk standards in the world which is new zealand and they can do it without messing it up mm-hmm so that's essentially what we're building. and um, So your hope really is to, by providing the technology or the ways to do this, yeah. you can empower people to then have that yeah. as an option, which then ultimately will help yeah. 
yeah. the cows and the process and all that, rather than yes. you yourself. Yeah, so I won't, I won't be doing farming anymore because I don't have cows or a farm, but there's plenty of people with farms yeah. around the world. Mm. And the other thing is this, the plastic issue. And when we're looking around how do we solve this plastic issue, there's, the only way it really works is if you've got local farmers supplying local markets. Mm-hmm. As soon as you have a long distribution chain, reusable packaging just doesn't make sense any way you look at it. So... When I realized that, we knew that we had to focus on the local farmer, which is what I wanted to do anyway. Mm-hmm. So now we've what, what the farmer would do is they'll take these tanks out of their hub and they don't handle pasteurized milk at all. Mm-hmm. Basically, they put raw milk into it, they seal it up, push the button, our system pasteurizes and cools it. And then they take that entire tank, put it on their truck, and they'll deliver it to an outlet that has our dispenser. And uh, that tank will s- just slide underneath a normal bench and attach to a dispenser, which is about the size of a, I suppose, a cornflakes box, really. Mm, I see. So now anyone who has a um, dispenser becomes a retailer. And this is, again, it's trying to give this access to ordinary people. Mm-hmm. So I don't want that you have to go to Pack and Save to become a retailer. Now anyone can be a retailer. So you can be a university student and you want to sell milk at the farmer's market or you could stand on the side of the road or you could be a cafe or you could be a dairy owner um, or you can be a school. Mm. We're going to start off with schools. Mm. So now what? Um, anyone can go up to one of our dispensers and swipe their card or their phone and um, just fill up milk with their own their own packaging. Mm. Um, so that's the, the general system that we're, we're building. Yeah. So you've become a technology mm. software company. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we have. So um, It's interesting to trace through the, the evolution of the idea, though. You know, like yeah. 10 years ago, you would have said, I'm helping these cows in this herd, yeah. you know, yes. like, yeah. and it's moved on from that to be yeah. actually how can we disrupt it. And mm. so in terms of the where you're at now, like have you got a time frame of when this type of equipment will be available so you're testing or where is it up built to the very basic unit mm-hmm. with the funds from our patreon supporters mm-hmm. and um i've just had a uh, a co-founder sign on so he's our um, technology um guy very experienced so he's going to start rebuilding it okay and we're actually now going to start looking for funding well we've been looking for funding and we're having to decide how we're going to do it so we've got I suppose this goes to the next thing is I don't just want to help a few a few farmers mm-hmm. I think we've got something I think actually has a competitive advantage mm-hmm. because now what our system is done is essentially the job to be done when you process your milk is heat it up and cool it mm-hmm. and put it in a package and I think we've done that in something that's far more efficient. And then we've made the distribution more efficient. And we've actually made the retailing more efficient. So from all our calculations, you know, instead of a farmer getting 55 cents a litre for their milk, we'll give them a dollar twenty. And anyone who's a retailer will get 50 cents a litre. And then we'll take a cut of around 30 cents. And that puts the milk price at about $2.30, $2.40. Right. So now our we're going to have the most sustainable, ethical dairy mm. in reusable packaging for mm. the same price as Fonterra milk, basically. Mm, I see. 
and and the, and, and the messaging comes back to the by local, you know, yeah. uh, that's the cow over in that field, yeah, well, right there, right? <laughs> like, mm, the, yeah, that's right. So, um, and we want to do it in fifty cow lots. So okay. we're calling our fifty cows as a core transaction. So, one farmer with fifty cows would need around ten to fifteen dispensers, mm-hmm. and they'd need four thousand customers. So, if we did that once in Christchurch, that's one percent of the of the market. But what that means is that that farmer now makes $100,000 of profit. You know, if you're a school and you're selling milk using our dispenser and, you know, 25% of your students buy the family's milk through the school, well, the school makes about $10,000 just from getting that that retail Mm -hmm. margin. So now instead of saying that you have to be a supermarket or a dairy to get the retail margin of milk, now Mm -hmm. schools can. Mm -hmm. Other social enterprises, anyone who wants to basically go out and sell milk and now do it so mm. i like the idea of we're empowering ordinary people to now make an extra income stream yeah i see yeah yeah and i guess mm. the the danger is if it involves lots of technology and um equipment and yeah. pasteurizing in small units or whatever yeah i don't know much about that <laughs> <laughs> but there must be technical challenges if uh, otherwise someone else would have invented it before maybe um, or is it just that people have gone big yeah. massive because they want to process hundreds and hundreds of cows people haven't thought how do we do it on a small scale yeah. this is a, that's it it's people are think people in the dairy industry who have the know how yeah. are not thinking oh we want to try and help a small farmer right because most of them are thinking well it's just the way of the world everything's going bigger yeah right. and it is but what happened is now technology has flipped and now we get the, the ubers of the world and the airbnbs which are now saying well actually being decentralized and being small is now an advantage mm. and when it comes to dairy farming i will put the 50 cow farmer up against the 2000 cow farmer every day of the week if it was comes to com- who's competitive in the consumer's eye right and what we're wanting to do is give full transparency about what goes on on that farm so the experience that i've had is that people are related to me because i'm honest and i don't mind telling them well this is what i've done wrong and I'd like to improve it, mm-hmm. but this is what we're working on, and all those sorts of things. You don't have to be the most perfect operation, mm. but I think people just want to know that you're actually telling them the truth. Yeah, yeah. it comes back to the word transparency, doesn't Absolutely, it? Absolutely, people yeah. people do want to know, and and particularly when it's a product that they're eating yeah, <laughs> or yeah, putting yeah. in their bodies. Like mm. I think you know, like you, I've got young children, and yeah. you know. You look at some of the things that um, you know, the sweets and the the different products, and you think, "What's? I can't even read the list of uh, yeah. chemicals on yeah. the back because there's so many. You know, yeah, like, yeah, I yeah. don't know what this stuff is." So I think that's going to yeah, be an absolutely. increasing trend as people want to know mm. what is the origin, where is it from. Oh yeah, absolutely, and uh, yeah. I think so. We're wanting to build a system that really a farmer can just say, "Well, look, I don't really know what to do." The, hub turns up tanks turn up they plug it into the internet and now they're compliant yeah anywhere in the world so make it yeah. easy make yeah. it easy and then we'll give them 15 dispensers tell them where to put them mm-hmm. those people plug it into the internet and now they're all sorted payments sorted mm. um compliance with keeping it cool and everything sorted and then we control which farmers supply which um dispensers and things like that mm-hmm. so yeah, we have become a software company but i think that's the biggest way in which we can actually have an impact mm. and um yeah so we're looking for um the best way to fund that we've we've got the crowd and i'd love to 
give equity to our crowd, mm-hmm. but I'm not sure if we can get quite enough money. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I guess yeah. that's the next stage then, huh? Yeah. Because eventually you'll need money to yeah. make these things yeah. to then sell them, to then be mm-hmm. able to do it. Yeah, so we, I mean, yeah, I don't and know. I, I'd like to do a two, uh, twofold. I'd like to get some professional investors who can understand what we're trying to build and also bring the crowd along so those core supporters who want to be part of the happy cow vision and really become shareholders can also do that Mm. Mm. so that's just where we're at at the moment yeah that makes sense Mm. and you've used the word social enterprise a couple times um as you know i'm passionate about that as a as a phrase and i just wonder if you could describe from your perspective what does it mean to you what is a social enterprise and i'd love to hear Mm. a bit about your article that was the reason I reached out to you yeah. that you wrote about um, World War Two, and you know, mm. just talking a bit about that. But before we get to that, just social enterprise. What is it? What does it mean? Well, yeah, I've heard this discussion a lot with friends. I think it, a social enterprise is when you use doing good as your competitive advantage, right? So, and I know that kind of excludes non-profits or um, what we call a charity, I suppose, in the old world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I talk social enterprise, and it's just for me, I think a social enterprise is a for-profit organization that's trying to do good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's how I narrow it down. But I, yeah. I realize it's a very narrow definition. No, I actually agree mm. with you. I, I think that I the little bit that I would add to that is that in the very thing that it makes or the people it employs yeah. or the vision that is part of its ethos, yeah. that's that's critical. So yeah. when I'm helping social enterprises draft their constitutions, for example, yeah. I always put as cause number one is we are a social enterprise. Cause number two is our purpose is one, two, three. Right. And I force them to be clear. <laughs> Why are we here? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. In other words, it's not just a ploy to sell more stuff yeah, yeah. that is made in the traditional way anyway. Yeah. It's actually inherently baked into the dna of the entity the company that we are here for a purpose which is beyond the profit the profit we need because we want to be viable we're not just getting donations and and um Mm. yeah so that to me that's a big distinction is um, that's that's a good point and uh, yeah i mean we wouldn't exist if i just i suppose i don't know why i have this passion i need to go to a counselor or something to figure it out but why i've yeah, because there's a lot of cost to it. Mm. But you, you do have to have that core belief. And mm. it can't be just, oh, I'm trying to sell a bit more stuff. Because mm. that's just not enough. Mm. I mean, you'll give up when it gets really hard, if that's the core thing. Yeah. So, I mean, what we want to do is, is the whole core thing is that it's all around making ordinary people and giving them opportunity. It doesn't matter where in the world you are. We just think that I just really do not like the fact that Everything is getting concentrated, mm-hmm. and the dairy industry is a classic example. So I'm trying to deconcentrate everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. It's interesting, yeah, because what you're really talking about is people. At the end of the day, people, yeah. th- that's what yeah. you're really focused on. Um, yeah. I guess one question I would have is, you know, the company is called Happy Cow, mm. right? Like, to, to what extent did the cows themselves have a place? In oh. this scheme, in, in, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, they always have been. I think is, I mean, farmers have always looked after their cows. And it's mm. actually, this is a really fraught thing. How can, because then your people would say, well, how do you look after your cows when then they eventually get sent to the works? 
you know and that that's true um mm. and yeah i think that the cows are obviously a a core part of it mm. and when i what when i grew up the cows are always in a small farm we i think my parents were around 300 cows you kind of actually know 300 cows you mm. probably don't think you do but you do yeah but it's now is everything like the average herd size here is 800 cows in canterbury i think mm. that's not become that's not farming anymore uh, in my view and what yeah so what i mean we called happy cow because well people just we started off being called nature matters um we thought the environment was the biggest driver i see and people and then we're just i had to put something on a sign for the the farmer's market and i wrote well we got happy cows <laughs> and just people kept just took coming back in that. on happy cows so yeah we eventually changed the name to Happy Cow Milk Company. Yeah. Um, but that whole thing around the calves and their mother um, is all around happy cows. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that you know, we can't, you can't say you got happy cows when you remove the calves. Like, we don't do it with pet puppies or kittens or, mm-hmm. or sheep or, or anything else. It just seems to be a particular dairy industry thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the average cow only lasts five years. Mm-hmm. You know, in Europe, it's even worse. Mm. You know, and they should be, they should be thirteen years. Mm. You know, in your herd for thirteen years, and that's all, all that, and that how you farm and how everything, everything around your whole business model, has to come down to the fact that those cows can live a normal life. That's mm. really what the ethos. Mm-hmm. I haven't really explained that very well, but yeah, no, but I get the sense. Yeah. But that was why I wanted to push the question a little bit because. It's interesting to me that underlying it, you know, the foundation yeah. seems to be that it's the people and empowering them to have the ability to not move towards the mass corporatization of farming. Yeah, but actually, e- now, but, but also, to, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Sorry to interrupt. Mm-hmm. What? Yeah, you've just spurred me on. But basically, you can't have happy cows if the farmer's not happy. Right. That's essentially it. Mm-hmm. So what I'm seeing is across the world, the retailers and the and the food processors have all the power, mm-hmm. and they screw the farmer down and screw them down and screw them down. So now you've got unhappy farmers who are actually marginally or unviable. Mm. And I've seen what happens when you get stressed, and the cows bear the brunt of it. Mm. And so you need to have well-funded, happy farmers in order to have happy cows mm. and a happy environment. And what I've seen around the world is that we've got very unhappy farmers. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, that's, that's helpful. Mm. I mean, I, I'm thinking back to my own family, you yeah. know, because <laughs> all of us, if we go back far enough, there's a rural background somewhere, <laughs> <Probably>. right? <laughs> and I'm thinking of my great-grandparents um, yeah. who had cows, but you know, they probably had six cows, you know, it wasn't, it was a tiny little block of land and, and they milked them for their, for their Mm. own milk, you know? Mm. Um, but I'm pretty sure, well, I know that they each had names, you know, and, and they probably did have their full lifespan or their life cycle, Mm. um, which, yeah, could he, is that, would that be a more normal average, like 13, 14 years that, a cow would live for or, or yeah. could they even live longer well they, they'll live longer yeah yeah but eventually things start giving out like, right like one of the biggest things is ligaments in their udder give out just naturally it's not because they've yeah. overbred or anything so you can't really milk them and yeah i suppose what we want to do is you know people said oh you should 
name the cows and let everyone see them. And I said, well, what happens when one eventually has to go to the works? Yeah, yeah. Or for a Sally. I mean, we, uh, yeah. we got lots of milk from her and she's no longer yeah. in the I mean, app. <laughs> I get a heck of a lot of grief from vegans at the moment, which is, I understand it and I'm cool mm. with it. Mm-hmm. But so what, everything about what we do is around transparency and just telling the truth. Mm-hmm. So we're going to say to people, look, we're animal agriculture eventually cows are going to get to the point where we can't milk them. Mm. And I suppose my gut feeling, and this might change, <laughs> I might get advised otherwise, mm-hmm. is just to show people and mm. just say, well, look, here's our cows. And this is a real day event, and this cow, we can't milk her because of this. Mm. So this is why she's now going to go to the works. And mm. what we're going to do is make sure that her entire trip to the point of her death is the most humane and... I can comfortably say to any any customer that all our animals are treated well. Mm. That's basically the approach I'm going to take. That's what you want to do. And so yeah. can I ask a question? Because um, just on Sunday, you know, there was a little documentary about James Cameron. Oh, yeah. And yeah. talking about the transition to plant-based yeah. um, lifestyle, really. Mm. And I thought it was really, he answered really well the question. It was something, because the interviewer was trying to corner him to say, how how can you come and tell us what to do, <laughs> rich American? You know, like oh, it was, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, it was yeah. that kind of a question. Yeah. And he said, look, I'm not telling you that New Zealand needs to change. I'm saying that everyone needs to change. It was something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I thought, actually, you know, that's actually, that's pretty accurate. Um, yeah. But what what's your feelings about that, I guess? And, um, yeah. I, you see, I don't have any cows or any equipment or anything like that. I don't need to be a cow farmer. Mm -hmm. I suppose I'm still doing it because I actually don't believe a purely plant-based agriculture is the the answer. I'm I'm all for it. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have plant-based milk in our house because of allergies and things like that. But there's different environmental impacts. Mm -hmm. And it's really, it's about a balance. We actually need both. So what we've got is we've got you know, this, this this industrial agriculture um, of dairy. Let's just, let's take the U.S. Industrial dairy agriculture is really bad for the environment. Mm. But then you've got that industrial soy is also really bad for the environment. And there's this idea that plants are good and animals are bad. But mm. I can show you that there's so much science around the you know the nutrient leaching of of, of plant-based um, agriculture is. Mm. Or it was worse, or depending on what the. This is controversial. <laughs> Basically, let, let's put it this way: a dairy farm leaches um, about fifty to sixty kgs of nitrogen, a a, he, a per hectare per year. A crop of potatoes will leach around two thousand. You know, organic broccoli two hundred. Oh, sorry, did I say two thousand? Two hundred kgs of dry matter for potato. Uh, now I'm all over the place. 200 kgs of nitrogen per hectare (laughs) per year. Yeah, numbers. (laughs) Um, You see, so you're getting, you know, four times the leaching of nitrogen, and it's from all that excess fertilizer that goes in. Mm. So if we just planted, instead of having Canterbury going into dairy and we had it all go into market gardening, we'd probably have even a worse water quality Mm. issue. Mm. But we would have more other benefits and, you know, and things like that. So it's not. We can argue for and back, and I'm not for any side, but it's actually a it's a balanced approach. Mm. We actually need animals. Animals put nutrients into the ground. If you have too many animals, they put too much nutrients into the ground. Mm. If you have just crops, which is monoculture, that's bad as well. So mm. that's why I'm 
I haven't articulated that very well, but no, I'm not a fan of, of purely just plant-based because what you're really doing is you're going extreme to one end. Mm. And if you went ex- extremes at either end, don't really work. Right. So it's the happy medium in the middle. Is the, yeah, that's what you'd advocate. With the centrists. Yeah. No, that's cool. Um, so can you just describe that image that you had in that article just about social enterprise and World War II? And, well, yeah, well, what, what were you saying? First, well, tell us what the image was. and then. Oh, what did I say? Yeah, well, basically I read a story about the Italians decided that they're going to jump in into World War II mm-hmm. and the Germans seem to be doing well. So they launched a raid across to London to bomb London and they had these antiquated aeroplanes that are beautifully built like Italians would, lovely designed. They had picnic baskets with, you know, with Italian wine and salamis and everything like that. And the the Brits turned up and just smoked them and cut them to bits. Mm. And really what, and one of the, the pilots, the RAF pilot said that when he was inspecting these planes, he said it was just like they were on a different planet. It's like, what did they expect? Mm. It was like they were on a Sunday flight. Right. You know, with their picnic lunches and things right. like that. We'll be back in time for a glass of wine. Yeah, 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 yeah. We'll go and bomb London and fly back to a hero's welcome. Mm-hmm. And what they turned up with is just that here was the Brits actually fighting for their country and they were not going to let anyone anywhere near, mm-hmm. you know, win. And they just tore them to shreds. And it was really the this idea that I'm sort of thinking, I think as a social enterprise is a, or as a, gross generalization is that we sort of think of it we're all very soft and fluffy and, and lovey-dovey and we're all so caring mm. but we go in there and we're going up against unilever and procter and gamble and all these corporates who are just finely tuned corporate machines that are getting product to consumers in the most cost-effective manner mm. and if we're as a social enterprise coming in there saying oh we're going to compete with you uh, it's going to be really really hard so you've got to design right at the start that this is going to be like a war and you're going to go in there and you have to just absolutely build this machine that is going to you know, be able to kill them mm. and take market share from them and you're doing it because your product's better for the environment or for the people or for whatever. Mm-hmm. So I suppose what I was trying to say there is that we actually need to be really ruthless about how we build a social enterprise and this is coming from someone who was... You know, running around with happy cows, frolicking, flor- I can't even say it, running around the paddock. Frolicking. Frolicking <laughs> around the paddocks with their cow- cows and calves yeah, and yeah. toe. And it was lovely. Everyone loved us. And we crashed and burned because we were just not able to be economic. Right. You know, we got cut to shreds by this massive big machine that is all perfectly designed. And they have no reason to let me in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... And that's, that's really what the article is around. Because the thing I hear so much from social enterprises is, oh, we're still trying to figure out our revenue model. And, yeah, that's true. It's like business is really, really hard. You know, one in five businesses will make it to the five-year mark. Mm. And of the ones that get to, that go past that, one in five will make it to 10 years. Mm. You know, it's really hard when you're not even trying to do good. Mm. So if you're trying to do good, it's it's really hard. And that's coming from someone who's, lost everything and and realized the hard way that um it's actually a brutal world out there Mm. so let's um and also it's you know to succeed it's just it's not glamorous it's not fun it's not doesn't it's it's not you know people aren't 
pushing you along the whole way, telling you how wonderful you are, although they have in my last year. But um, And what I sort of feel is that it's very easy for people to, to get inspired about something and say, oh, I'm going to start a social enterprise that helps this. But then what that, I mean, are they prepared to put, to spend five years of hard sacrifice, like sacrifice where you have to probably mortgage your house and all this sort of stuff to actually reach that goal. Mm. And very few people are. And if you are, well, that's great, but do you actually have the machine that's going to actually compete as well? Mm. And you're probably not. Mm. So maybe it's better off to give $100 a month to your favorite social enterprise. Mm. Maybe it's better to volunteer at somewhere or go and work for someone or something mm. like that. Mm. Which comes back in a way to the modern culture of the heropreneur, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. the, like the the goal is to be the Mark Zuckerberg who's founded Facebook, you know? Yeah. And like if if you can, and it's throughout our culture, I think, yeah. At, yeah. At, at the moment, it's like, who do we elevate? It's yeah. the people who've been successful in business. Um, and yeah. And it's not, you know, there's not really a place for, well, actually, I'm not placed to do this. I, I like what you said, you know, maybe it is, I'm going to give a hundred dollars to this other person yeah. who's doing their best and is better placed than me. Mm. It's not very trendy to, to do well, that. Well, it's not, in, you know, in the Instagram world where we all want to be showing, oh, I'm helping this social enterprise this week. Yeah. Or something. Yeah. I mean, that's all cool. And I, I don't want to sound like a dick, but you know, some of the heroes are the, you know, there'll be there's old ladies who just every single week, yeah, the steadiness, just go and do this thing mm-hmm. that is really valuable for this one organisation, and mm-hmm. no one ever hears about it. Mm-hmm. And probably never will until her funeral, when someone says she's done yeah. this wonderful thing. Yeah, I think you're right. There's a yeah. phrase uh, one of the authors I love. Um, he talked about a long obedience in the same direction, which yeah. basically means you keep making the same choice every day even when it's hard moving in the same direction and you might only advance you know 10 centimeters (laughs) but over time that long long obedience to the call of what you're aiming Mm. for is what is valuable and and i hear you um i in my role because i'm working as a lawyer so i deal with lots of people coming in Mm -hmm. and i try to help them think through what they actually want to do and yeah. what is your background? Is this actually going to be a, a feasible thing? Yeah. Um, because I think it, it's a temptation to throw yourself into it, but actually it may not be the best thing to do, well, which nobody likes to hear. No, and even, <laughs> well, take my situation. We could be sitting here saying, oh, Glenn, you're so wonderful doing this thing, but hang mm. on, I've just, who have I failed? I've failed my wife. Mm. She, I mean, she's kicked me out. i failed my children. So I'm not there to kiss them goodnight. Mm. Um, does that, you know, is that right? Mm. Probably not. I, I should actually be putting them first. Mm. And there I've gone and I've followed down this path and it hasn't gone the way I wanted it to. But, you know, you could equally say, and there's plenty of people who are saying that I am actually the worst person. Mm. So I can't, you can't sort of, I mean, either way it'll work out. I, know, I mean, I know it'll work out, but you there is no hero's journey. I mean, mm. maybe I'm a hero for saving some cows and calves or whatever, but I'm equally a villain for mm. putting my wife under um, so much financial stress. Mm. You know, so there's no... I mean, I don't think there's... Everything's always a compromise. There's always mm. compromises everywhere, and I, you know, I don't know if I've done it right. Mm. But um, 
that's just the journey, I think. Yeah. Well, everyone's story behind the uh, the Instagram picture, <laughs> there's more going on. <laughs> oh, yeah, there? Yeah, yeah. Whatever that picture, if yeah. it's on the beach, there's other things going on. So, mm. yeah. Well, I, I appreciate your transparency. I I don't have an answer for you. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's really hard because, yeah. you know, when you look, the thing that's guided me in my life, and I don't know if this helps or not, but when I'm 95 or whatever, you know, assuming, let's hope, you know, I can get there and I look back at my life, what will I look back and regret? What will I look back and mm. say, why did I devote so much energy and time to this or that thing? Um, as opposed to this or that other thing, mm. which with the benefit of decades, you realize, yeah. you know, wh where was the true value? And I think in our culture, we often get focused on the, 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 the glitzy, you know, the, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the snazzy thing, the, oh, the glittering. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and it's yeah. not, it can't, it's not healthy. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, it's just the world we live in, and it's—I it's, uh, don't know if social media is helping us at all. Mm. <laughs> yeah, but it's funny because I, I can't help but think of the story you told at the beginning as well. You know, you're a four-year-old walking down the road in Africa, <laughs> yeah. and there's a lion in the distance and a snake yeah. over there, and um, you know, how do you react to those things? It's, uh, mm. it's uh, yeah. Well, I mean, honestly, the reason we keep going is that we've got. 700 people who decided to donate money to happy cow cause mm. you know and that's those people i don't think i can't thank them enough and i they don't realize the actual impact that they've had mm. and i think in 10 years time it's those 700 people mm -hmm. are just going to have such a disproportionate effect on you know the way things are going to go mm. not because i'm a genius or anything but it's I'm just starting this and mm. keeping it going. And then what's happening even now is we've got a whole lot of far more experienced and more qualified people, people mm. who can actually do maths, who are all jumping on board. And it's this that's going to take the, I suppose, my experience and the genesis and the just the idea and the, the grit just to keep going. Mm -hmm. But it's going to compound, compound, mm. and it's those people who are going to take this on. Mm. And it's, yeah, so those 700-odd people are just... I can't explain how pivotal they are. Mm. And we've got all their names and numbers and uh, we'll be in touch when we finally get, yeah. get our money in place. But I, I, those people are just going to go down um, in happy cow history. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, yeah, it's interesting. Well, hopefully that some of them at least can listen to this interview because I think this has been a fantastic um, you know, door opening. And I know you've been very public about sharing your journey, but mm. I feel like we've been able to talk a lot in a lot of detail and yeah. even just to thank them like you've just done, you know, maybe that will be something that they're listening to and go, Oh, well, they, they already know. They already know. But, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. Yeah. So if people are interested in finding out more and, and maybe they'd like to join or, you know, get involved, what's the best way for them to reach out or connect? Oh, with well, you? they can go to, well, at the moment it's all me. So it's, it's a very underutilized Facebook page. We're on Instagram, happy cow milk. Uh, you can go to our website and then um, in Patreon, if you feel you want to, you um, um, Happy Cow Milk on the Patreon site. Mm -hmm. um, and the best way also is to sign up to our newsletter because that's where I actually um, communicate best with our, um, mm -hmm. with our fan base. So you can access that from our website. Okay. 
Mm. Great. Well, in the show notes to this episode, um, if people scroll down, we can put links to everything. So oh, what we'll do is uh, if you send me the links and I'll just paste them in and okay. cool. um, we'll put in some descriptions <laughs> and things. And oh, that'll be yeah, great. Yeah. But I just mm. want to say thanks so much for coming in and chatting mm. and, you know, just to hear your journey right from Africa and <laughs> <Yeah>. landmines <laughs> blowing up. And <laughs> well, they weren't blowing up. But yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, they might have. <laughs> Um, Let's say know, they were. Yeah, it's. Uh, but just that that background, and then coming here, and just hearing about your life, and sort mm-hmm. of how it's led to what you're doing now. Um, yeah, it's been really, it's been special because yeah. you you know you're very transparent and open about the 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 downsides of what you're doing as oh, well yeah. as the, the <laughs> positives. So um, oh, we appreciate for putting the effort into it. I know how hard it is to do a weekly podcast or yeah, a, yeah. a regular podcast. Yeah. Yeah, no. Yeah, it, so well, I just feel like it's a platform to be able to tell stories. And, yeah. you know, if, if people, hopefully people are listening and they can learn something from your journey and maybe mm. uh, avoid some of the mistakes, oh, yeah. right? So yeah, yeah. that's what we <laughs> want. <laughs> things to avoid, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, thank you. No, no problem. All right. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Glenn. For me, it was a really challenging one, and sometimes I wasn't sure what questions to be asking because he was incredibly honest about his own journey and what the sacrifices are that he's had to make to advance the cause of happy cow milk. If you enjoyed it, then check out some of the other episodes, maybe leave a rating or review, and tell a friend about it. Until next time! <laughs>